0: Quebec. Zulu. Two. Uniform. Kilo. November. Standby. This is Wargame Space Calling. You're listening to Wild Weasel, a podcast about wargaming news, wargaming ideas, and wargaming people. I'm Bruce Garrick, your host and electronic warfare technician. Hello, welcome to Wild Weasel number 18, or if you've listened before, welcome back. There aren't many times in life when the world is so much in sync, having the same experiences and talking about the same things, same concerns, same hopes, same fears, that you really don't need to say anything and everyone knows what you want to say anyway. But I'm going to say it right here. Highway to the Kremlin is getting a reprint. Yep, the game that an entire generation missed due to its being out of print is coming back as Highway to the Kremlin 2. You know millennials don't think about much else than Napoleon's invasion of Russia, so you can imagine that having the best war game on the subject be out of print for over 20 years has been quite a hardship for them, and for everyone else who didn't buy this before it started going for $150 on the copy on the secondary market. But now, instead of $150 on BoardGameGeek, it's only $120, with shipping, from OSG. By the way, who was the person who thought of getting rid of the loud bugle sound that I played every time you went to napoleongames.com? Because that person should get put in charge of the coronavirus response, since it's one of the best ideas I've heard all year. If you can think of a better idea, you can comment on the website. So, uh, when was the last time we talked? December <laughs> of 2019. Man, so much has happened since then. I can't remember a lot of it, though. I'm pretty sure there was some OCS involved. You ever had one of those OCS blackouts where you just binge so hard that you can't remember what happened? Yeah. I've had some visitors here in Portland since then, and I even got a chance to play vocal Runkas Nevsky with a listener who goes by the name of Board Tactical. We fought over Novgorod and then shared some scotch. Uh, That was before the pandemic, though, in January. Since then, I've been somewhat active on Vassal, helping another friend of mine with a game that you'll hear about in a bit. Um, I still have a hard time sitting in front of the screen for very long, though, so I'm grateful to my friend Ken for being willing to keep me in at least the occasional face-to-face game. Although we spent our entire last session uh, just deciding that the next time we meet, we'll play Streets of Stalingrad. Uh, Oh, and I've enjoyed the series of talks that Harold Buchanan has had with various members of the Wargaming tribe. I love David Doctor's name for us. I think it's quite apt. Uh, Go to ConflictSimulations.com and check them out. They're really good, except for the one I did. Oh, and for God's sake, don't try to find them on SoundCloud, because they're jumbled up in just which whatever way. And don't say Wargame. Well, I'd like you all to pour out a cold one for Rally in the Valley. Yeah. Yeah. I went to dedicate a paper plane to them on Twitter one day and found that they had deleted their account. And that's not all. They pulled their old episodes off of Podbean. Yep, I was surprised too. But that's up to them. And all I can say is that if either Tom or Michael is ever up in PDX, they should stop by the Weasel Warren for a game of ASL. It actually goes for anyone listening to this podcast. So, Quantum World Expo got canceled last year and got moved this year to August. I understand why. I had planned on going again and had specifically arranged my work schedule around it, and now the new date in August is when I'm on call. So, no luck for me this year. That's life, though, and it'll all be fine. I'm hoping 2022 will be the year when I get to sit down and play an entire game of Hungarian Rhapsody. Okay, so one other thing I'll address once, and then that will be it. I read an amusing Twitter exchange in Spanish between some people regarding my go-fuck-yourself comment from the last podcast. Uh, I had to have Google translate it, but from what I could tell, the back-and-forth discussion seemed to attribute my comment to uh, some sort of political disagreement. Now listen, guys, I get that everything is politics these days, but I honestly have no interest in commenting on anyone's politics here, and they certainly wouldn't lead me to call out anyone on this podcast pretty much ever. Uh, there are plenty of people who I see on Twitter or whatnot liking or retweeting stuff that I find absolutely atrocious, but that's what Twitter's all about. If it's not making you mad every five minutes, it's not doing its job or pointing you to cat videos. Not something to dwell on. My response was solely to someone who reviews so many games that he barely has time to read the rules, going on a sanctimonious, sarcastic, prescriptive rant about how other people's game preferences are outdated, and being dishonest about it. That's all. Yeah. Okay, so as long as we're getting the bad feels out of the way up front, let me say one more thing I think I've said before. You might hear comments on this podcast that say negative things about some games. I know that the current etiquette is that you shouldn't criticize anything ever because you might hurt someone's feelings. I don't agree with this philosophy. Um, People are starting to take board game design very seriously and whatnot. And, I mean, from my perspective, as soon as someone starts taking themselves seriously, they're pretty much eligible to be told that they're full of shit. Or at least politely, but firmly disagreed with. Speaking of Twitter, uh, I want to warn you that I don't plan on being as active as I have been in the past on there. Uh, Twitter's made a bunch of changes over time that really put stuff up in your grill, especially stuff I'm just not interested in. So I'm not going to be posting as much anymore. Uh, for example, I didn't announce this episode on Twitter. Uh, if you want to keep up with the Weasley, you should probably just follow the podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes or whatever uh, podcasting uh, medium you use. Um, okay, I can hear you saying, but Bruce, I don't use SoundCloud. <laughs> Look, man, life's rough for everybody. I mean, Harold's always posting this stuff on Instagram, and I want to see it. When I told him I can't see his stuff because I don't have an Instagram account, he said, tough luck, Chuck. That's just how it is. I mean, nobody's going to hand you stuff on a plate. I mean, Krangle had to send me an email about the Ziploc Case Blue because it was on Multiman Publishing's Facebook page, and I don't have a Facebook account. And we all just got to get by. Yeah, what else is there to say? I'm designing a war game? No, I'm actually not. Uh, It'd be fun to say, though. Uh, What I am designing is a game where you go to a planet of dragons and use magic to breed and train them, and then they fight each other in the way that dragons did historically. Um, But I've been working on that for years, and I still can't seem to get it right. I need to do more historical research. Now, we can talk about that stuff later, and we will. But first, the news. Before I start on the news this time, I want to let you know that this section is going to be changing a bit. Uh, When I started the podcast five years ago, holy cow, five years ago? Yeah, okay. Five years ago, yeah, it's true. uh, There really wasn't a place to go for wargaming news on a regular basis. Um, Five years later, though, that's all changed. Uh, Wargaming Twitter, in particular, uh, has come such a long way that I think the news environment has fundamentally changed for the better, really. Um, If you follow certain Twitter accounts, such as, I don't know, just Mo's Game Table or uh, the Player's Aid, or, or, as I prefer it, the player said, and uh, previously Rally in the Valley for your role playing and Hello Kitty news, uh, you can stay up on almost everything going on in the hobby. I mean, there's unboxings, reboxings, shadow boxings, whatever you want. Uh, you can see what a game's components are and rules are like before it's uh, even been designed or thought of, pretty much. Um, yeah, YouTube channels like Art Wolf and Blue Gremlin do excellent playthroughs. There's Stuka Joe. Uh, there's always Kev at the Big Board with his uh, blunt evaluations of nothing at all to do with Euros. Um, even the publishers are getting better at promoting themselves, with the, the unfortunate exception, you have Legion War Games. Oh, God. Randy, uh, you got to let my people know. Yeah. And in the end, what I'm saying is that I don't think there's any reason for me to be going exhaustively through all the new things I can find each time, uh, especially since I'm not able to do these every two weeks or month uh, as I previously hoped. Now, I still want a new section, though, so here's what I will do. Uh, each episode, I will choose three to five to Seven, to however many things that I want to point out, whether they be Kickstarters, pre-orders, uh, Rumble, you know, the the Grapevine, rumblings about new releases, or even games that have been recently released that I'm just flat-out interested in. Uh, in other words, it'll be more of a curated section rather than an attempt to cover everything in Wargaming, uh, which, by the way, which I was never even close to doing in the past anyway. So this will be uh, a Switch, or really Continuity. Yeah, okay. So, let's start with a game that came out about the beginning of the year, uh, except that year was 2020, I think. Uh, it was called Jaws of Victory, Battle of the Corsoon cherkasi Pocket, January-February, 1944. Yeah, it's pretty long. Um, it was designed by Milt Genosky and published by New England Simulations out of Nashua, New Hampshire, uh, who've got a handful of releases to their credit, uh, the best known of which is uh, probably Killing Ground, which is their fillets pocket game from 2002. Uh, I guess they like pockets. Um, Jaws of Victory is one of those really old school games that reminds me a lot of Comrade Jack Rady and his people's war game style of Eastern Front minutia purveyance. Yeah, I mean, you get everything. Heavy tanks, uh, differing anti-tank factors and effects, a bunch of independent brigades and battalions and whatnot, all with special abilities or, you know, this thing does that thing or add plus one to whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the physical presentation is very nice with a sort of, uh, I don't know, it's like an old operational studies group feel from about maybe, I don't know, the time of Panzerkrieg, except with more modern printing methods. Uh you know, they have the scenario cards and little situation things. It's I mean it's really nice. Um so uh I played it a bit on Vassal and liked how it worked, although I don't have the time or energy right now to play the campaign game. And uh the campaign game is the only thing that really matters, right? Yeah. Uh okay, so let's see. Uh, there's a series I've just become acquainted with called Death Ride. That's all those pronounced Death Ride. Um, like that. Uh, it's published by Grognard Simulations, uh, which is another name for Chris Fasulo Jr. Uh, Chris did a nice interview with Harold on games in which he discussed his concept of making a game so big uh, that it was essentially unplayable except in buildings with dedicated game rooms and special equipment such as tile mounted magnets. Uh, this would in turn maximize sales. Uh, so Chris's theory is proven to work in practice by the fact that I bought three of them. Um, Chris has death ride games from, I don't know, D-Day to North Africa. But the ones I'm specifically interested in are called Deathride Kursk. Yeah, that's right. You can play Kursk at the platoon slash company level. Oh, wait. Not all of Kursk, just the southern pincer. Okay. Let's not go crazy. All right. Uh, no plans to play yet. I mean, they're sitting there, but uh, I got a clip about 1,200 counters. And that's just from the first game. Okay? Yeah, well. So you can find more about that at grognardsims.com. Uh, okay, what else? Oh, yeah. A game you're going to hear more about on this podcast. Uh, that's Brotherhood and Unity, a game about the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina from 1992 to 1995. Now, it was designed by Tomislav Cipcic, and it was published by Compass Games last summer. Um... It's really it's best as a three player game with several players for the Serbs, the Bosniaks and the Croats, although in a pinch you can play two player with one person playing as both the Croats and the Bosniaks. I got a chance to play a three player game face to face last summer, that's just just this past summer, with my friends Ken and Scott. I can attest to the fact that it does a fantastic job of making sense of a campaign, at least from a military standpoint, that uh, I always found confusing when it was in the news as a contemporary, you know, news event. But uh, That is published by Compass Games, and I will have more to say about that later on, so stay tuned. Uh, So, now, another game you might hear more about around here, uh, possibly as soon as the segment right after this, uh, is A Hot, Dry Season. Uh, That's a game about Operation Attleboro in the area of Vietnam known as Warzone C in 1966. Okay. This is by a first-time designer, uh, Patrick Mullen, uh, who has a defense background, uh, great research skills, and access to some truly obscure historical sources. So, uh, Pat shares my suspicion of system games, where you create a system and then just jam whatever situation you want into it by changing the map and cards, maybe adding an extra rule for something. Yeah, you know. Uh, Pat started out trying to modify the silver bayonet system for this game, but ended up writing a, you know, just a brand new rule set from the ground up. Uh, I've play tested it a lot via Vassal, and it really does what I think is a very good job of capturing the different operational realities faced by the uh, different combatants. Uh, It's available for pre-order at the publisher Legion Wargames at www.legionwargames.com, and it's going to get printed when pre-orders reach 250, and it's a bit under half of the way there right now. Let's see if we can get more... Um, but one thing I should probably disclose, uh, up front about this game is that I'm helping fund it. And I'm, I'm just paying some of the out-of-pocket expenses, such as the artist we hired. We got a really good artist, hasn't done war games before, but, uh, I just love the the new conceptualization he did. And, um, and thus I have an interest in seeing it published since that means I'll have a chance of seeing at least some of my money repaid. Although, you know, frankly, it's, as far as I'm concerned, it's all, it's all gone. That This is war games. Nobody's, uh, doing this to, uh, get rich. But, um, I'm going to be recommending this game for several reasons. I mean, I've played it, uh, not the least of which is that there simply aren't enough operational level Vietnam games that have something to teach you about why the war was fought the way it was. Uh, let's see. So I've also been exploring some offerings from a company called Conflict Simulations Limited. Uh, by the way, just an aside, can you imagine if video game companies use the same naming rubric as war game companies? Like Blizzard would be California Digital Fighting Recreations, Inc., and uh, EA would be, uh, I don't know, basically the same thing. Yeah, so they need to differentiate themselves. But, I mean, war game companies are perfectly happy to make me have to look up who is Grognard Conflicts and who is Conflict Grognards, and oh, jeez. I mean, I'd love to see a new war game company name itself Happy Banana or something. That's just a sign. Uh, What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. Okay, Conflict Simulations Limited. Yeah, okay. Uh, So uh, this is a company out in New York City that is laying claim to the mantle of SPI and Victory Games now that Mark Herman has moved to Connecticut. Uh, The owner is Ray Weiss, who I think is the sole designer at this point as well, but he's got uh, people working with him. He has, like, a a regular developer and artist. Ilya Kudrashev is his artist. Ilya has done a lot of um, war game art. Um, I noticed that... uh, they have a series—this is actually how I, how I found out about them—they have a series called Destroy All Monsters, uh, also known as Damos, and also known as the only Eastern Front game I've seen uh, since SPS Barbarossa 35 years ago to use uh, strength points. Uh, it's been a long time uh, for that mechanic to show up again. Uh, right now, there are three games about Barbarossa, entitled Army Group North, uh, Army Group Center, and Army Group Happy Banana. I mean, I mean, whatever, Army Group South. Um, <clears throat> you knew that, though. Uh, they're, of course, able to be combined into one large game about Barbarossa. Um, they take about as much space as one map from Vance von Borey's East Front series from GMT. Uh, by the way, GMT, your refusal to reprint that series despite it having long since met its P500 number, it's going to become a hot-button political issue in California and Oregon, at least, uh, if you're not careful. So, uh, keep that in mind. Uh, but as far as the Deimos series goes, you can buy a canvas map that puts all three maps together. So you can just roll them up and have to find somewhere else to store it than the game box because it's a canvas map. Okay. Uh, if you don't like the Eastern Front, fine. Uh, how about three games that cover North Africa from Libya to the Torch Landings to Endcoff Tunisia? Uh, this is uh, currently a pre-order with a tentative release date of Q1 to Q2 2020. That's not a typo. Or maybe it is. I mean, that's what it says on the web page. Um, seriously, there's so many games in the game store that you wonder how it was possible to play test them all. Um, this is possible only because they use the same print-on-demand company, uh, Blue Panther, that's used by Holland Spiele and White Dog Games. Still, it's intriguing. Crimean War? Yes. Korea? Uh-huh. Something called the Violent Schoolmaster Tactical Series? Absolutely. And these guys at least have a sense of humor. Uh, I hope they have a sense of game design and balance. Uh, you can find them at consimsltd.com. And lastly, uh, Kim Kanger has a second edition of Road to Karen about the East African campaign in 1941. Not East Front, East African. Uh, and that's available for pre-order. It's a second edition. He's revising it extensively. Now I love Kim's designs. I'm glad he's taking the time to improve this one uh, the way he took the time to improve the final gamble. Uh, that's 40 bucks at legionwargames.com. And that's the news. So, today on Wild Weasel, we have as our special guest Pat Mullen, a longtime Gronyard and a brand new game designer. Pat, welcome to the show. Well, Bruce, thanks for having me. So, Pat, I'm not going to pretend that I've never talked to you before because we've talked many times. And as a matter <laughs> of fact, uh, I have been working with you on a game that you are trying to get published, and it looks like it's going to get to that point. Um, but it's your game, so you tell me about it. It's a, it's about. Uh, I think you were you were saying it's going to be this. It's going to be combined D-Day and and Battle of the Bulge, or is it Eastern Front World War II?
1: Um, well those are the only choices in wargaming, right? right? Yeah, so you got to pick one of those
0: 3. Otherwise, I think that you're you're disqualified. But what well, did you could, come up with?
1: Well, well we could do the American Civil War too. Ah, that's
0: true. Yeah, yeah, Harold Buchanan would be a, would uh, be excited about that.
1: Um so I am doing a um, operational echelon wargame, pretty mm-hmm. groggy. Groggy groggy dealing with um Operation Attleboro in War Zone C 19 What the hell is that? W- and that occurred in 1966. In fact, the title Yeah. is called a Hot Dry Season. Okay. Operation Attleboro and War Zone C.
0: Okay. So it's a hot it's hot and it's dry and it's in Attleboro.
1: Attleboro, <laughs> Massachusetts? Well, it, well that's the origin of the operation, name yeah. actually. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, um most of the troops um that were initially involved in the operation from the U.S. standpoint were, um, well, really the unit was formed up at Fort Devens, Massachusetts, which was near Attleboro, Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. So when they, when Operation Attleboro started in September, 1966, about like three months Mm -hmm. after the uh, 196 light infantry brigade separate arrived in country, they an operation that was basically looking for NLF cash sites in war zone C. And so they called it operation Attleboro. Cause it was like, Hey, let's name it after the hometown. Yeah. yeah. You know where, where everybody came from.
0: Well, it's, um, uh, it's unfortunate that they, there were no New England, New England Patriots at that time for them to root for, so you you, could, you can't put any New England Patriots like uh, 1966 memorabilia in the game. But uh, so well, at, they were the, so
1: they were actually the Boston Patriots. They're pretty good. Were they pretty good? To, yeah, yeah. American Football League, man. Oh, they, yeah. oh, the AFL.
0: Yeah, they were in the AFL. Right. But they didn't. Yeah. They didn't get. Yeah, yeah. That's right. That's right. Okay, Boston Patriots. Yeah, the they, they, the 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 merger was in '70. So yeah, they could have been the Boston Patriots.
1: Everyone is an alliance fan like you. That we don't have a history of sadness. I know. We'll not get into that. So, so
0: here's the question. Um, so, what the hell is Warzone C?
1: Warzone C um, referred to by the um, the NLF National Liberation Front. You know, um, the the communists, the Politburo, the, commies, the, the right. Biacon, right, referred to it as uh, military region four. Uh, but War Zone C itself was a was a um, MACV term for this area that's about 70 miles north of Saigon mm-hmm. um, uh, that, uh, on the Cambodian border. There, it, it really consists of the provinces of uh, Tain hmm And um, a large portion of Binduang province, um, which is just to the east of Tainan. And this was, uh, so so that area sits astride the Cambodian border. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you go 20 miles further north into Cambodia, Mm -hmm. roughly, Mm -hmm. you approach um, a couple of um, main sanctuary base areas for the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So War Zone C was... The in Vietnam, I always refer to it as like a industrial-sized covert logistics hub mm-hmm. um, that could support core-level operations for the NLF. Mm-hmm. You know, both in th- three core tactical zone mm-hmm. uh, and in the Saigon area. It was, you know, it was supporting. That was the the, the place that either a Supplies were loggered up, mm-hmm. you know, and then dispersed from that point to smaller caches, you know, mm-hmm. you know, in, in other locations. And the main route, um, which is along the Saigon River, which starts in Cambodia and really flows through this area, mm-hmm. um, a main entry point in this area for both military formations as well as replacements coming in from Cambodia. Okay. And so the
0: u s. then decided that this was a, the main operation center, and they needed to go do something about it
1: yeah they you know the funny thing is they felt they need to go do something about it, but I, I, they, they kind of didn't go about doing something about it in the best way. I, right. I mean what really drove the operation operation Attleboro occurring. And mm-hmm. that's a good way to describe it, as occurring. current okay. Not Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm getting that for a reason. Really, by and large, it was, it was an engagement battle okay. that occurred between NLF and U.S. forces that really weren't looking for a conflict as large as it later became, mm-hmm. okay? So what drove Mac the... Um, along the road that led to Operation Attleboro mm-hmm. was really that they, they were trying uh, one, of, one of the prime priorities after U.S. forces arrived in 65 was to put an end to attacks and um, road security issues and ambushes and even direct fire and missile attacks in Saigon and on the Saigon area. Right. Like, like you know, rule number one in a counterinsurgency or, you know, unconventional. Conventional war, a lot of Mm -hmm. people call Vietnam, in in, in the new lingo, more of a hybrid war. Mm -hmm. You know, yes, you have local guerrillas, but you also have, like, large standing units that are there to protect the guerrilla, you know, the the popular effort. Goal number one Mm -hmm. was to secure the Saigon area. Mm -hmm. And to do that, they needed to clear out these local support areas, like uh, the Hobo Woods. uh, Hobo Woods? uh, Yes. Yes. what it's called? Yes. And uh, another area called the... uh, Coochie tunnels, you know, everybody's heard of tunnel rats, yeah, that sort yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah, that we've heard in of, an, yeah, that we In an area, it, it, the, the area was roughly called the Iron Triangle, and okay. it was like about 20 miles northwest of Saigon. And mm-hmm. that was a main support area for a lot of these operations. But okay. all those ops and other ops that mm-hmm. the NLF were conducting were all really supplied coming in through this war zone C. Okay. So after U S forces arrived, they conduct a few clearing operations, trying to clear the iron triangle. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the, none of these efforts had any, any persistent effects, okay. y- you know, uh, they clear units that they wouldn't find, um, large groups, of personnel, large, uh, large, large, large amounts of supplies, they would find some, they would destroy some things, and then uh, the NLF would come back.
0: Okay, so this was a, Mi- this was an operation to, to try to, to come in force and, and stay there.
1: No. No? So th- no, no. So, this MACV came to the realization while they were doing these clearing ops, say, late 65, early 66, you know, around Saigon, they then launched a couple of operations into War Zone C, this 70 miles north of Saigon, and another area I won't get into called War Zone D, which is to the much further to the northwest of Saigon. Okay, was there War Zone A and B? I gotta ask. There were not. Don't what? ask me. Don't ask me why.
0: Oh man, so a, I know. I know. It's disappointing. Okay. Yeah, it is. So, I, I agree. Okay,
1: go ahead. So. In early 66, they sent um, elements of the 1st Infantry Division basically up main highways trying to engage VC main forces, disrupt their operations, and uh, disrupt uh, the, the, these logistics and supply efforts. Okay. And, you know, it you start to see the weakness of the search-and-destroy concept when applied to Really? Getting, how
0: so? Explain that part.
1: Well, the enemy can avoid contact. So what that what the vc did at these times was uh, you know we're talking when i say vc i mean main force vc in the game i call them plaf you know okay. you know we're not talking about a you know guerrillas by night farmers by day we're right. talking about organized military units they would right they'd fall back into the terrain they would harass they would ambush they would they would uh, you know incur some casualties they would they would refit and then they would come back they had done this many many times what they uh, previously to the Arvin, when when the when the you know this phase of the long conflict, Arvin in being the China South started.
0: Vietnamese, just just so for people, Arvin is the uh, South Vietnamese,
1: right? Uh, Army, uh, Army of the Republic of r- Vietnam. Okay, correct. Sorry, correct. go ahead. That's right. So, so they've done this to the Arvin many many times from sixty one to sixty five. What the U S in those operations that predate Attleboro? Mm-hmm. What the u s didn't fall for and, and proved more tactically proficient in than did the Arvin was in not falling for uh, basically faint tactics that would allow units to be isolated and destroyed okay. they, they they were aware of those you know you know so, so they, they they would fight these main engagements casualties were inflicted on both sides, but then they would leave you mm-hmm. know and then the, the, the operation so MacV decided that they couldn't disrupt these supply these supply areas. Through essentially going into the areas when when when, Vietco- when main force formations were were contacted, mm-hmm. destroying them and then pulling out. What they needed was more persistent presences. Okay. Now that's a problem when you're nation building. The Arvin, at this time could not provide a persistent presence in war zones. Why C. not? Ominously, dun, dun dun A year before, in fall of sixty five, they had tried to with the fifth division. Uh-huh. Arvin 5th Division, whole division of Arvin. Yeah. And they were rendered combat ineffective by yeah. the VC main force units. Okay. So uh, this was a problem. This was a problem since the, since the conflict started. This mm-hmm. is kind of the, the Rubik's Cube of how do I deal with these suppliers and how do I deal with the main force when my goal is to provide you know security for my capital, etc. So okay. what MACV decided to do was send as I alluded to earlier in our convo, this mm-hmm. 196 Light Infantry Brigade to Tainan Province, mm-hmm. station them there permanently. Okay. Now, they were green. They were brand new. Just got to Vietnam in June of 1965, mm-hmm. and they were in a new Light Infantry Brigade concept that had never been field tested. Okay. Well, what
0: does that and, mean? What does that mean, a new Light Infantry Brigade concept?
1: That is a real, real interesting question. Um, the idea was to have an independent infantry brigade that could operate on its own, you know, not as part of a division with divisional support. Mm-hmm. So, and the idea was to have light infantry. So, the way the battalions were disposed, what what they call in the army their MTO mm-hmm. modified table of equipment, yeah. was which is really how how do I organize my battalions? Mm-hmm. Is the, their battalions um, had more companies so instead of your classic at this time u.s infantry battalion having a headquarters and headquarters company and three subordinate infantry battalions the idea was to have a headquarters and headquarters a headquarters element that that didn't really have any power concentrated into Mm -hmm. it and then four companies okay Okay. equal so you could cover more terrain light infantry so we're, we're talking you know less reliance on um 4.2 4.2 mortars, which frequently got left behind later in Vietnam. Okay. Um, ble- uh, less reliance on heavy weapons, but able to be moved about um, the area of operations more more um, rapidly by helicopter. Okay. And so that was the idea. So they sent a brigade there, mm-hmm. and they started looking for cache sites, and they had some success. And there was some intelligence uncovered that led to, hey, you know. We may just be at the tip of the iceberg about what we think is here. Mm, okay. Now, while this is happening, um, the, the dry season part of the title mm-hmm. is uh, the uh, Cosvin, the central office for... Um,
0: uh, South Vietnam. It's That's South the Kami yeah. uh, that's, that's, uh, uh, High Command.
1: Yes, yes. The, the, the VC High Command made the decision that they wanted to send uh, a VC division mm-hmm. reinforced by an NVA regiment. Mm-hmm and they wanted to send it into war zone C Mm -hmm. and they wanted to overrun a lot of new special forces infrastructure that had been sent up, set Mm -hmm. up the the number of camps in the area had grown from two to four and were Mm -hmm. causing some, some issues with infiltration in and out of the province. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to isolate and destroy some of these Americans, just like they had the, just as they had the Arvin a year before and Mm -hmm. before, before then. And so, uh, they're moving into the province and uh, their, their their presence isn't really fully uncovered or aware of by MacVie. Mm-hmm. you know, while they're moving in. Mm-hmm. Right around the time when uh, the 196 Brigade um, expands Operation Attleboro and says, hey, let's move a little further northward in this province, mm-hmm. and we want to uncover, uh, we, we've got some intelligence about some serious cache sites, and we might even have some VC there that, that we can search and destroy. Mm-hmm. And... That's how the campaign began, and sure. it, 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 it um, both sides really bit off more than they can chew. Okay. I mean, you have a situation where the U.S. underestimated NLF capabilities. The NLF underestimated not so much U.S. firepower, although there's still a little bit of that going on, but the ability of the U.S. to do what it eventually did when, it, when this contact got hot. Mm-hmm and reinforced the entire area with all but one battalion of the 1st Infantry Division within a five-day period. Mm-hmm. Some of those troops, after being operationally, you know, near strategically moved into the area, mm-hmm. um, actually seeing the field like less than 24 hours after hitting the ground. Got it. But the PLAF weren't, weren't used to that type of operational mobility, right? You know, and the ability to react. And the army so, couldn't do
0: anything like that.
1: Right, right, and and uh, so so it, that's really the story of Operation Attleboro. Okay. Um and yeah, so the, the game is it's a you know covers thirty days. Mm-hmm. It's a day turns, company scale, mile per hex.
0: Yeah. So this is so this is uh date so day turns. How many days is that going to end up being?
1: Well, twenty five from right. November first to mm-hmm. November twenty fifth. But there's an in game option. That uh, the NLF player might not be aware of, where the operation could go on an extra five days. Oh,
0: okay. so uh, well, what and you mean the NLF th- might not be aware of it. Well, like they just forgot to read
1: the rule book or something. Exactly. They, it, what one of the the design philosophies I, I I really tried to throw in there is a lot of uncertainty about operational guidance to both sides, mm-hmm. as well as operational options that are available to both sides. I mean, who launches an operation and says, well, this is going to last twenty five days. Right. You know, it 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 it's about capacities, it's about intensity. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, there are other factors that enter into that. Sure.
0: Okay. So I mean, what what would you say is the thing that you would want in this game? To get across, like, this, like okay, I'm, make, I'm making this game. This is this is the um, this is the basic element of um, of Vietnam of, of of combat in the Vietnam War at this at this time that I want to get across. Now, I mean, there's a lot of things that you haven't chosen to do. You don't have a deck of cards. You don't have any meeples. Um, I mean, this is a this is a hex encounter, and I've you know I've play tested with you. This is back and forth, back and forth. What are you trying to show?
1: I think the first thing i really wanted to do was essentially start exploring the vietnam war in terms of a real operational treatments okay and i think that that there's been a dearth of that in war gaming it really i'm just designing a game that i'd like to play okay fair enough and and there are titles out there that deal with vietnam operation like, great title by gmt came uh anniversary re 25th anniversary reissue a few years ago mm-hmm. silver bayonet yep um, so you've seen that and I've seen the Ia Drang dealt with yep. maybe not nearly as well or nearly nearly as elegantly as Silver Bannet mm-hmm. does in, yeah in, does in a of, nice job yeah. in other treatments and I've seen the Battle of Hue dealt with mm-hmm. and that's about it you know uh, th- there there's I think a, a tendency in wargaming to verge towards um, tactical treatments mm-hmm. of the Vietnam mm-hmm. War yep. or big st- strategic treatments yep. which many have been done Nick Carp's mm-hmm. Uh, Vietnam by Victor yes. one mm-hmm. or even even political military treatments at an even more nosebleed level than that. Yeah. But actually, just looking at the operations, what was each side trying to trying to accomplish? What uh, what was the operational guidance given? Mm-hmm. Uh, could that uh, you know, and and what occurred and what was available? That's just not done a lot, yeah. and there are many operations. That, that are deserving of that kind of treatment. They just, I, th- I think they get lost in the land of, um, you know, uh, like you were alluding to, you know, more Bulge games and more Stalingrad games. Right.
0: Well, I think part of it also is that the, I mean, <clears throat> it really shows you how much credit you have to give to Nick Karp because he got a whole bunch of, the, I mean, the research for these games is incredibly difficult to do. And I think as you have found, um, you have to really dig deep into, I hate this term, but get into the weeds um, in a way that I think a lot of people are either not, don't want to, or simply unable to, right? They don't have the knowledge of where these archives reside. I mean, you almost have to be, you know, an amateur historian to really, you can't just go buy books about it, right? I mean, nobody, you're not going to go buy a book about Operation Albor, right? I mean, tell me a little bit about what you had to do for that research, because I think this is really important for how games get made.
1: Yeah, for Attleboro, that's certainly the case. There's no like the two titles I I, I provide an example of, you know, and they're, they're like I said, you know, but the subject matter themselves. If you take the Battle of Yidrang as an example, there's a fantastic book out there called We Were Soldiers that mm-hmm. in detail covers yep. you know the Yidrang campaign, yep. and it's 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 ingrained in the pop culture and yep. in the pop history mind, mm-hmm. and you know there's a great movie with Mel Gibson made about, it. Sure is. you know, and, you know. um Battle of Hue, same thing. There are there are, are, are many secondary sources out there where you can pick up a book and read about the the NVA attack in, on Hue during the Tet Offensive, mm-hmm. and, uh, and the U.S. Marine response. And again, it was featured in a Kubrick film. You know, you know, you know. It, you know it's but what you, with Attleboro, there's no Attleboro book, so. Right you go to the you know obviously start with official histories on both sides mm-hmm. um pick up other documentation but for this yeah if i didn't do primary document research there wouldn't be this game i had to you know i had to go into military you know contemporary military records and, and take right. a, okay what caches were found mm-hmm. what casualties were you know what right. capabilities were up in the air and 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 and, and do that kind of work yeah. to get this out now for other Titles I got planned, as you well know. Yeah. Like uh, I'm looking at a Lampson 719 title. You know, even that there's some wonderful secondary sources out there, but you've got to go down to the primary level to build the orders of battle, to build, you know, figure out the MTOs, to 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 get the stuff right for an operational treatment. Uh, you, you know, to get it to where you're accurately reflecting the capabilities, et cetera, and yeah, you know, it took a lot of work. It took about two years worth of research to get this. I mean, the one thing but I'll say this, you're absolutely right about Nick. What blows me away about that game and the research that he did is it was nineteen eighty four. Yep. I can reach out to a friend, say, at the Center for Military History and get some sit reps, you know, scanned and emailed to me. Right. Or or notes that a you know, uh, a former historian up there who died had in his notes the guy who was probably gonna. That's the debt I really owe in this is to uh, my buddy Eric Villard up at uh, Center for Military History. And mm-hmm. there's a, a, a retired Colonel uh, McGarrigal who mm-hmm. wrote uh, one of the uh, official military histories in '95 who passed on, but I'm pretty sure was preparing to write an Attleboro book because yeah. he had far more than what he needed in terms of uh, of his source material to write the the relevant chapters. Uh-huh. Yeah and you know but you know you couldn't in 1984 reach out and get that stuff like sure. in a day or two yeah or or email somebody or, or or get what you needed so so for nick to get what he got right yeah. it's pretty fantastic and any small quote unquote errors in the ob or the realism it's like well remember it's 1984 right you know a lot of that material was classified at that right. time right right
0: well that's me. it's great that you're that you're able to I mean, it, that, I feel like that's the kind of the, the difference between, uh, you know, it, forget about grognardism and, and non grognardism. Sure. I think that there is, a, there is a, a a way in which people sort of look at these games, and for some people, you you know, you can read a book like Max Hastings' Vietnam, and you can make a game out of it, right? I right. Mean, which is fine, and and it's I'm not saying that that's a bad thing to do, I'm saying that that's not the way that... Um, a, uh, that somebody who is really um, looking at history is going to look at it. It's going to be. It's going to be. Um, you you want it, You want the game to, to tell some kind of history in a way that you can actually test. And I think the only way you can do that is to have a lot of data that you're sort of putting under the microscope, as they, as they say. Um, which is why you can't this this operational stuff you know you see all these games and you've got some you got some guys and you got these guys and you got those guys and you got a combat system and you're you know it, it sort of tells a general flow but that's not what you're trying to do you're trying to actually get into the same operational decisions that the um, and sometimes you know sort of grand tactical decisions that the commanders had to
1: make and i think that's that's really the rub i i, I you know when you get down to it, what you're saying to yourself and there's there's a political element to this question mm-hmm. in terms of the historiography that's out there mm-hmm. and and i think it bleeds over into the war gameography mm-hmm. shall we say yeah. is do the operations matter mm-hmm. so if if it's you know uh, you know without getting into the the merits one way or the other you know regarding the vietnam conflict from a political standpoint uh operations usually matter I, I you know I, I does you know uh, the operations around Kiev in 1941 mm-hmm. matter later when case blue is being studied right of course it does right mm-hmm. you know it, it helps set the preconditions right. but I think I think we got a tendency to focus on these large outcome or narrative changing events and not realize that these operations build one upon the other right. you know um you know not not you know in vietnam let alone in world war ii right. operational treatments at times so so you know you know what we always end up going back to the to the gettysburg or the stalingrad the big mm-hmm. thing you, you know right. and so certainly though talking about the narrative though the pop history narrative regarding mm-hmm. the vietnam war well if it oh, my God, it was a waste of time and, you know, we didn't win or anything. Then, well, then why even bother studying the operations? I come from a different school of thought in that where, you know, if you study the operations, you're probably going to come up with some reasons why an effort was unsuccessful beyond maybe just the futility of it. Mm -hmm. Or it may help outline that futility. Got it. Uh, You you know, I mean, there's also another myth I think that's out there from a historiography standpoint about you know U.S. tactical invincibility.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we never lost a battle. Right. You know, well, did you succeed at your operations? Yeah. You know, usually in in warfare, if you succeed at your operations, chances are you might succeed at a conflict.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. So the fact that you you may you may not have lost the battle in the sense that you were militarily defeated, but you certainly didn't get done what you wanted to get done.
1: Which is. I don't. I don't know about you, but if I start parsing through Roger's Thesaurus, right, right, that that sounds like a defeat.
0: Right. Well, that it's well, yeah, but it's like the way that I things were when I was a kid, right. I would the only way I could I could comprehend a battle is I went and counted how many casualties one side had and how many casualties the other side had, right. And that was that was who won because it was like a you know I played baseball, it, it's a scorecard, right.
1: Or, so, or or you just take all the victory point hexes right 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 right, right yeah. you know and then you won right you know yeah. it, 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 no, uh, you know obviously it, you know we're being facetious but right. you know it, it, that that's what that's th- there's a, wargaming sometimes i think in a hobby it, when looking at these topics we look at things from a maximalist point of view as well right? right so so if it isn't like if it isn't Stalingrad why why should I play it? Right. well you know what what if what if you conducted your operations pre Stalingrad so you didn't have a Stalingrad right
0: I, 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 You don't have to sell me. I mean, you sold me on the game a long time ago. But uh, but I'm going to leave it at that, actually, Pat Mullen, because what we're going to do next is that when you come back, we're going to talk more about the game and how it's actually progressing. Because I think it's at a point now where it's basically feature complete, as they say about software. And uh, we're now going to be moving on to, hopefully, publisher and production. So next time uh, you are with me, we will... Talk about that, and maybe there'll be stuff on, some stuff online that we can uh, we can refer back to. Oh, thank you very much, Bruce. Cool, thanks, Pat. Since Pat and I recorded that interview, he secured a publishing deal with Legion War Games, and the game is now up for pre-order on their website. Go to legionwargames.com and look for a hot dry season. I said that I'd be getting back to Brotherhood and Unity, because the game does some things I really appreciate in my wargaming, which is to teach me stuff. (laughs) I remember following the news during the breakup of Yugoslavia and the subsequent wars in that region, but it was always from a very American perspective. You know, for example, my recollection of that time specifically includes President George H.W. Bush recognizing the independence of Croatia and Slovenia, although that was many months after the Germans already done that. And the wars never really made clear sense to me militarily, because I didn't have the specific knowledge of that geography, and the news reports weren't, well, in the States, let's say they weren't exactly David Glantz books. Um, I did find an incredible BBC documentary, uh, which was released in the U.S. by the Discovery Channel, entitled Yugoslavia, Death of a Nation, which has some of the most incredible footage I've ever seen of any historical event. And it did a fantastic job of explaining the politics. But I'm a wargamer, and I still didn't get the war part. And then I got Brotherhood and Unity and played it. And in, you know, 30 minutes, I started getting answers to all the questions I'd had for 30 years, such as, what were the Serbs' military objectives? Why were there enclaves at Srebrenica and Gorazde? How did the Croats benefit from cooperating with the Bosniaks? And what was all this stuff about the so-called Posavina Corridor? Well, as soon as you lay out the map and read the victory conditions, you get it. The fact that each side has certain areas it needs to control because of their ethnic composition makes it immediately clear why the Serbs, for example, could be intent on capturing one area but completely uninterested in an adjacent one. And the same ethnic geography explains why certain cities became enclaves as the combat pushed the forces in directions dictated by that geography. And the only way the Serbs can supply their areas in western Krajina is to control Posavina. The Posavina Corridor, well... That only makes sense when you know what it's a corridor to and why. So, it's probably not surprising that the designer, Tomislav Cipcic, is from Croatia. I'm sure there's a ton of material on the conflict that hasn't been, and never will be, translated into English. In any case, the perspective of someone who is able to put all this material in context is something I wish you had more of in the hobby. Now, I have a Chinese game about the 1979 Chinese incursion into Vietnam, and I would love to see more conflicts show up as games by somehow overcoming the obstacles of limited English sources. I'm still waiting for the definitive Warsaw Uprising game, for example. Maybe someone in Poland is working on it right now? By the way, if you ever get the chance to watch the Yugoslavia Death of a Nation documentary, do it. Now, speaking of videos, I've been working on a video series about the Eastern Front for some time now, but that so-called work mainly consists of me playing more and more games about the Eastern Front and taking notes. I have a general outline for the way the first episode will run, but I'm hitting a wall and that I think I need better graphic presentation of certain things, uh, at least better than I'm able to do right now. I, I saw this amazing animated Eastern Front uh, video that someone did, and it really opened my eyes to how powerful dynamic map style presentation can be if you do it right. Now, I've been working on this with a program called After Effects, but the results are hopelessly amateurish for me at this point. Uh, if anyone out there has some expertise with this kind of stuff and wants to give me some advice, drop me a line. And I have a link to the video in the show notes. You should watch it. And that's it for this time. Next time, maybe I'll have more progress on my Dragon game. And you'll probably all have finished pre-ordering the GMT reprint of Victory Games Vietnam 1965-75 by Ned Carp. And I will probably have started playing Streets of Stalingrad. That'll be an interesting one. Oh, and check out my interview with Lou Coateny at Three Moves Ahead. I'll have one with Dana Lombardi up soon. Plus, Panzerblitz. Until then, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time for more wargaming news, people, and views. This has been Wild Weasel number eighteen.